Good morning. I'm Mike Overstreet, pastor at Element 3 Church. And I want to share something you might not know about me. I am a hardened criminal. That is, at the age of 14, I was arrested for a felony over a truly heinous crime. Let me set the scene, okay? It was the summer before going into high school, and I was volunteering at my old middle school's band camp where all heinous crimes take place. I was working with incoming sixth graders on percussion. And one morning, this bee flies into the room and the kids go nuts. They're scared, they're trying to get away from it. Well, the bee landed in front of me and I flew into action. I stomped on it and stunned it. And then without thinking, I flipped out my pocket knife, cut off its stinger and flipped it aside. And in my mind, check off my good deeds for the day I just saved a room full of kids. And the day went on and I didn't think about it again. That is, until I arrive the following morning and my friend tells me the cops are looking for you, which I thought was a joke at first, but then it became abundantly clear that it was not. You see, I saw a police officer walking towards me with a very stern face. See, what I learned was that I lived in a post-Columbine world. And in that world, there were these things called zero tolerance laws. Laws that said carrying any weapon on a school campus was an automatic felony, regardless of circumstance. Before I could even think, I was being interrogated over and over again, getting asked the same questions. It was straight out of law and order. They took my knife and I never got that back, but I guess I shouldn't complain. And then I was handcuffed, put in a cop car, and taken to jail just weeping. Fingerprinted, mugshot, the whole works. And I was left there waiting for my parents to come bail me out and pick me up. And over the following weeks, the weight of my situation sunk in. I mean, it's funny to think that I got arrested for killing a bee, but what I began to learn was I was facing potential time in juvie, expulsion from all public schools and lost friendships because to some parents, I was now the bad kid. And y'all, I was so scared, scared that I had ruined my life, that I lost friends, that I let my parents down. And while my, par my parents did so great, they, they encouraged me, they kept me positive, they, they tried to help me learn from it without shaming me. Everyone else in my life fanned that fear. The cops, lawyers, parents expressed the same sentiment, judgmentalism, that my fate was sealed, that I was condemned. And y'all, my church was the worst. I had Christian adults, rather than rallying around me, pull me aside to lecture me on spiritual evil. They told me things and implied things like that the devil had gotten into me and that I had become a bad person. And I felt such shame but my best friend's parents responded a different way. See, a few days later, they invited me to go to the pool with them. And I was hesitant at first, but I did agree. But I was hesitant because I just feared more judgment. I didn't want to lose this friend too. But here's the powerful thing. They didn't say anything about my arrest the entire day. They treated me normal. They joked with me. And I had the best day. It was like the pressure left and I got to just be okay for a moment. 
And later I asked them, why? Why did you treat me that way? And they probably don't even remember their answer, but I always will. To paraphrase, they said, we knew that you weren't a bad kid. You were a good kid who made a mistake. And we wanted you to know that we were there for you, that you weren't alone, that you were going to be okay. And y'all, that grace from my parents and them were the only responses that changed me from that experience. It left me in this interesting space. I could either reject that grace by staying the same, not learning anything from it, or I could respond to it, not by earning it. You can't earn grace, but by accepting it as a gift, saying thank you, and just moving forward with a desire to do better. That is the power of grace, unmerited favor. It's never earned, but when it's given and accepted, it's the only thing capable of motivating a broken human being to grow from their brokenness and their mistakes. Grace, the last of our seven values here at Element 3 Church. These values that we've been exploring in this series, Therefore, where we've used chapter 12 of the New Testament book of Romans to look how it and the larger biblical themes underneath it inform our values as a church, the necessary therefore of Christ's story, the how of life together in the church that flows out of our faith in Jesus, the story of God and the movement of the Holy Spirit in and among us. And today we explore this mountaintop value perhaps the most important and foundational value we have if we are going to be a church, and that is grace in all things. Our belief that when the Holy Spirit is moving in and among us, we experience and display grace in all things. And to dive into it, we pick up where we left off in Romans 12, starting in verse 17. We find that Paul writes this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends or beloved, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So notice that Paul doesn't question if we will be wrong. He assumes that inevitably in this world, we will be wronged at some point by evil or other people. Instead, he focuses on our response to wrongs, what we can control. And apparently, our response to wrongs impacts our witness. Look at this. He says, be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Our response will somehow show the watching world who we are, who our God is, and what story guides us. And with that, Paul lays out two different ways of responding to wrongs. First, he says there's vengeance, repaying evil for evil, which he flat out prohibits. And what he's talking about here is injustice disguised as justice. It's when we seek to do justice freelance and in our own favor, us judging what someone deserves based on our perception of them and what they've done to us and then punishing them and condemning them however we see fit. In other words, revenge. And Paul is skeptical of our ability to play judge. He seems to think that we are too biased and too compromised to judge fairly. So he says, go a different way. Trust that God alone 
Is the judge capable of just judgment and punishment? Allow, make room for God who loves, cares for us, and wants to heal us, other people in our world. Allow that God to guide justice. Choose God's way of responding to wrongs in the world. This way that he calls the way of peace. And then Paul describes it. And y'all, this is a doozy. He continues on. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So instead of vengeance, Paul quotes Proverbs 25 and insists that Christians must respond to wrongs by relinquishing our right to retaliation and blessing the person who wronged us. To which we're probably like, are you sure about that? That seems like a good way to get wronged again. But yes, I promise you he's sure because Jesus was incredibly clear about this principle. You see, in Matthew 5, 38, during Jesus' big teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, we read this same principle being taught by Jesus. He puts it like this. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. In other words, vengeance is the path of justice. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus lays out three scenarios that show us this other way. And these are amazing, y'all. Let me walk through them. First, how do you respond when someone slaps you? And Jesus' instruction would have been provocative to his first century Jewish audience. You see, in his first century culture, his culture was defined by intense hierarchy. Your place in society was clear, and it determined your reactions with everyone above and below you in that hierarchy, including how you hit someone. You see, you only slap someone with your with open hand if they were beneath you. It signaled disrespect that they were below you. And you punched someone who was your equal. In either way, you only ever used your right hand because, well, the left hand was used as toilet paper. The, old, the ancient world was weird. And using it to hit someone would dishonor you. So you just didn't do that. So someone slaps you with their right hand, right? Saying that you aren't on their level of humanity. How do you respond? Do you slap them back? No. Jesus says, you turn the other cheek. Now wait, so Jesus, you want us just to roll over and take abuse. No, 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 no. This is a ninja move by Jesus. And to show you, I actually want to show you physically. It's easier to understand that way. So I'm going to invite up my friend, uh, Jason Davis, and we are going to walk through what's going on here. So Jason and I are in an argument, right? And I slap Jason with my right hand. Now, what happens when Jason turns the other cheek? Can I slap him again with my right hand? No, see, that would be like, I'd have to like palm him or something. It would be awkward. This is not how it's done. See, what Jason has done with one move is he's turned the tables. I can hit him again, but to do so, I'm going to have to either slap him with my left hand, which would dishonor me, or I'm going to have to punch him, acknowledging him as my equal. 
I mean, this is powerful stuff. I could hit him again, but what would it do? See, his move, what it says to me is you can hit me again, but to do so will upend your hierarchy. It will acknowledge my humanity and it will make you see that you are treating a human being just like you with such degradation. Thank you, Jason. I appreciate that. I mean, this is powerful. It turns the tables around without Jason even having to throw a punch in retaliation. He maintains his integrity and I'm now put in that awkward position. Next, let's move to Jesus's second scenario. How do you respond if someone sues you for your cloak? So first, we need to have two bits about this to understand it. The first bit, being sued. You see, debt was rampant in Israel. They were taxed like crazy by the Roman Empire. And if you couldn't pay off your debt, the person who you owed could sue you for pretty much everything. They would sue you for your animals, your land, everything. The second bit, clothing. Israelites generally wore two layers of clothing. They had an inner one, like a shirt, right? And then they had an outer one, like a cloak, which was to keep you warm. So Jesus says, someone has already sued you for everything. They've gone after your land. They've gone after your animals. They've gone after your money. And then they come after the clothes off your back because that's not enough. I mean, this is vicious. This is ruthless greed. So how do you respond? Well, Jesus says, after they've taken your clothes, you start giving them your coat as well. Why would you do that? Well, think about it. You start taking it off and then you're nude. I mean, this is funny, but it's also masterful. See, in Jewish culture, public nudity wasn't shameful for the nude person, but it was for anyone looking at their nudity or anyone who made them that way. So with one move, they have decided, they have to decide to dishonor themselves or they're going to have to start begging you to keep your clothes after all, which I'm sure all of you understand. I mean, this is, again, turning the tables without ever having to sue them back or retaliate. And lastly, this third scenario, what do you do if someone makes you walk one mile? And this isn't a fantasy scenario. See, Israel was conquered by the Roman Empire. They were occupied by the Romans. And under Roman law, a Roman soldier could ask any conquered person to carry their gear, that heavy military gear, at any time. That person would have to stop what they were doing and carry it for them. It was a reminder of Roman dominance and superiority. I mean, just imagine you're playing with your kid in the park. You're having a picnic. You're going to church and suddenly a soldier stops you and says, you have to carry my gear like a mule and you have no choice. It's humiliating and it reminds you who's in charge. But here's the thing. There was a limit on how far a soldier could ask someone to carry their gear. One mile. Any farther. And now the soldier was breaking Roman law. And you didn't want to break Roman law. They took that very seriously. They pretty much mastered crucifying people. So what happens when they come, they try to humiliate you by saying, hey, carry all this heavy stuff I've got. I actually did not buy this sort of the sermon. I already have it. Don't ask why. They ask you to carry it. And you respond to this humiliation with kindness by carrying it an extra mile. What happens? Well, that soldier is now chasing after you, begging you to give him his stuff back before his supervisor catches him and he gets in trouble. Again, you've turned the entire power dynamic upside down through kindness, 
not retaliation. I mean, this is a profound teaching. It is a profound way to respond to evil and wrongs through non-retaliation, kindness, goodness, blessing, which is alien to us today. See, our world teaches two lies that produce two responses to wrongs and evil. First, it teaches us that evil can be avoided. So what you're supposed to do is do nothing when you're wronged, which only produces despair and powerlessness. And second, it teaches us that evil can be fought with evil, that good guys can defeat bad guys by wielding the same tools, but for better purposes, which produces vengeance. It perpetuates evil, and it costs us any moral high ground because we're doing the exact same thing. And both of these lies and both of these things that it produces are contrary to what Jesus teaches. See, Jesus gets how evil works. It's a virus with one purpose, to spread, infect, and reproduce by tricking us into becoming like it, especially when we try to use its tools to fight it. And vengeance is its ultimate victory because it spreads and it never ends. I mean, just think about it. There's a person who wounds us. They hit us, right? They hit us hard. And evil says, what do we do? Well, we hit back harder. Vengeance, that's the solution. But what ends up actually happening? Vengeance triggers in the other person or group. Vengeance in response to your vengeance. And then you get revenge on their vengeance. And on it, on it goes. And the wounds keep flowing. And it never ends. Anyone seen that in the world? Now Jesus gets evil, but he also gets how it's defeated. This third way where we maintain our integrity in the face of wrongs by bravely refusing to play the game of evil at all. Because what happens when we refuse to dehumanize the other person, when we refuse to retaliate, when we refuse to seek revenge, we refuse to get even, we get hit, but the cycle stops with us. But even more than that, our response gives the wounder the possibility of stopping too. We become a mirror to the one who slapped us, sued us, made us walk that mile. Our response forces them to see what they're perpetuating, to see who they are, and it creates the opportunity, no matter how slight, for them to stop, to repent, to change, to go a different way. This is why Paul says, giving grace in response to wounds will pour coals of fire on the head of the wounder. Burning remorse when they are forced to see how they've treated another human being, another image bearer of God who refuses to treat them the same way in return. Giving grace isn't just a nice sentiment. It's both right to refuse to usurp God's place as judge, and it's the only response that has any chance of turning the wrongdoer's heart back to God. Giving grace is the only way to overcome evil in God's eyes. It's at the heart of Christ's story, the story of God looking at our brokenness and responding to it and the brokenness of our world by giving himself fully, by sacrificing himself in love to forgive and to heal us and to bring us back to him. 
He's showing us a different way with his entire being. Theologian N.T. Wright summarizes it this way. Yes, there is evil out there in the world, but God's people are to meet it in the way that even God met it, with love and generous goodness. The theology of the cross, in fact, can be glimpsed under this apparently detached ethical maxim. When God came to defeat evil, this was achieved not by using greater evil, but by using its opposite. Namely, the surprising and initially counterintuitive weapons of goodness. To be consumed with vengeful thoughts or to be led into putting such thoughts into practice is to keep evil in circulation, whereas the way to overthrow evil rather than perpetuating it is to take its force and give back goodness instead. I mean, that's it. Grace is so important. Grace must shape how we as the church view everything if we are going to be the church, viewing all things as an undeserved gift. And when we do, it changes everything. You see, I believe when we display grace in all things, we see that every human being, including ourselves, holds the image of God. And it lets us change how we think about them and treat them because we see every human being on this silly world as a gift to be cherished. When we display grace in all things, we recognize that all of us stand in equal need of grace. So we can stop judging and looking down on others just because they have different sins than our own as the church has so often gotten wrong. We can't stop trying to punish broken people into healing. We can respond to brokenness as God does with unconditional love, unmerited favor, blessing. And we might actually see people heal and change if we do. When we display grace in all things, we cultivate deep gratitude because we believe that everything we are and have is given, not earned by the goodness and grace of God And y'all, when we do that, we become more likely to cherish it, to appreciate it, and to give it away for the good of others. And when we display grace in all things, I believe we can let go of that sickness of vengeance. We give the mistakes of ourselves and others over to a God who can actually handle responding to them. And we just stop adding wounds to our broken world, and we actually might be able to become a part of it of its healing. And I want to close with a story that takes this from the realm of thought and brings it down into reality because this is more than just nice ideas. It's the story of this lady, Mary Johnson, a woman whose son was murdered by 16-year-old O'Shea Israel. And it was a murder that was senseless. It was over a petty fight. And it left Mary bitter. She describes thinking of O'Shea as an animal, During the trial, she just kept thinking how badly she wanted to hurt him. And it just made her so resentful and bitter. And she held on to that for years. Well, that is until 12 years later. See, she came across a poem titled Two Mothers. And it depicted this conversation between two moms who didn't know each other, but had both lost sons. And what the poem describes is them bonding over grief, them sharing in the fact that they both have such loss embracing each other in love over this common wound. Well, the two mothers, as it turns out at the end of the poem, are Mary, 
Jesus' mother and Judas' mother. And this moved Mary Johnson deeply. See, she read this and realized that forgiveness couldn't be just a thought and it couldn't be just forgetting what happened. And it couldn't be retaliation. No, what she realized was to forgive, she needed to embrace O'Shea in love. So she went to visit him in prison. And it was so hard. But as they talked, she describes this beautiful thing that happened. She began to see him not just as a murderer, not just as a sum of his mistakes, but as a human being, as a boy who made a horrible mistake. And he began to face the hurt he caused, to see the wounds he had created. And they both broke down in tears. They hugged. And she says all that bitterness left her and all she could feel was peace. And she kept visiting. She kept helping him. And she ultimately helped him get his life back. And when he finally got out of prison, with her help, he healed and he began to move forward. And this is the crazy part. He now lives next door to her. And to this day, he calls her mom and she calls him son. He says he only made it because of her. Because he was lucky enough to have this second mother. That's how the world is healed. That's who we are called to be, even though it's hard. I mean, just imagine if, if enough people refused to play the game of evil, if enough people lived like that, if they lived like Christ in the world, don't you think maybe, just maybe, the world would look a little different, a little more like God? Giving grace in all things is non-negotiable if we will be the church. It's the heart of Christ's story, which means it's the heart of who we're called to be. And getting it right is our witness of a different way, a divine way, a godly way. And the world is watching us. But I believe when we get it right, when we show the world a different way, when we respond to wounds with blessing, with goodness, when we show them by how we live the goodness of God, I think we become a piece of the good news of grace in our world. That is a high calling. But by God, I think it's a beautiful one. So, reflect. Where do you need to give grace? Where do you need to stop the cycle of retaliation? Where do you need to go a different way? Because the world needs you to, and our God calls us to. Amen.